Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Andy Mink, Vice President for Education Programs at the Center and your host for this episode. Today we're talking to Chris Bunin, an educator from Albemarle High School in Charlottesville, Virginia, an assistant professor of geography at Piedmont Virginia Community College, and a member of the Virginia Geographic Alliance Steering Committee. Chris was also named the National Social Studies Teacher of the Year by the National Council for Social Studies in 2016. He's helped lead several instructional initiatives here at the center, titled Mapping the American Experience. This program has been funded by ESRI and the Connect Ed program, and given us an opportunity to work with educators at the K-12 and at the university level around the use of geospatial tools and developing geoliteracy approaches for themselves and for their students. Uh, So welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. So Chris, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about this use of geospatial tools. And, you know, already it sounds sort of tech heavy and very mechanical. So we'll count on you to translate it for our instructional ears and our teacher ears and our our scholar and research ears. But I guess that starts with the simple and most obvious question. What exactly is GIS? Hey, thanks. That's a good question. Uh, GIS stands for Geographic Information Systems. And if you think about it, Really, since the beginning of time, we've been interested in geographic information, whether it's how do I get from point A to point B, or can I create a map that shows where my crops are? Can I map out battles on a Civil War battlefield? The difference is is GIS is the system of geographic information. The simplest way to think about it is the G stands for geographic. You need to have a map. It's the visualization of that information. The information itself is a database or simply put in a spreadsheet of data, so it can be an Excel spreadsheet. The system is how you can have those two things interact together to create new visualizations or just different visualizations. It's very, very interactive, and it's something that our students and ourselves, we're using these technologies all the time, whether it's us using the Waze app on our phone to get from point A to point B in the morning, and we've got people crowdsourcing accidents or traffic delays. It's Pokemon Go. It's using the same information, but it's now being revealed with the smartphone to see little Pokemon caricatures uh, show up. It's the election maps we're going to see in a couple of months where they're going to show you how the reporting precincts are coming in, and in real time we see that information change. So it sounds like in some ways you're talking about a spatial language and vocabulary. It's one that we all use. It's very intuitive. It's the way that we view the world around us and make sense of it. Uh, I'm wondering uh, how you've seen geospatial tools um, and maybe mention some specific ones, the ways that they might impact the humanities and maybe as interesting, how do the humanities impact or bring alive those tools? That's a a really good question as well. Um, You know, you think about humanities and how important maps serve for the humanities. If it's a, if it's a story in a, in a novel, there's often a map to help people visualize and see the scenes. And history books and history on um, research papers and, and books, they, they often want to map out what they have uncovered doing their research. What GIS brings to the humanities is the way to uncover hidden layers layers that might not be obvious to the naked eye because it's a system of data and you can, we call it filtering the data. You can also um, bring in new layers. Uh, You can bring in social data, uh, whether it's census variables. You can bring in and plot in primary source accounts, as long as it has a location tag to it. So it might be that you originally have a map of, say, uh, social protests. And we can see where the protests happen, but then we also have eyewitness accounts at different corners of what they saw going on. And you were out there and you captured the video. You can bring that video in, I think it just, it creates the ultimate mashup for humanities to bring in 
information they might not have thought about seeing yet, or they just said, wow, you know, by adding that layer of information, we now see a different pattern, or it raises new questions. Sometimes GIS doesn't solve the problem. It just raises new understandings and leads you in a new path for research. So I'm curious, you, you mentioned uh, these digital assets or this information that's attached through the system to a mapping visualization. What kinds of, of information are we talking about? Not just text, but what else might it include? A great example is to think about uh, one that we've had a lot of success with are, is the American Revolution and the Civil War. Each of those um, events are tied to, they have battles, but they're tied to causes. And those causes can be, in the Civil War, uh, slavery played an important issue. So you can bring in census data. And that map data is mapped by county and by state levels. So you can look at which counties were producing the most uh, manufactured good, which counties had more of the enslaved uh, labor, uh, which ones were producing cotton, um, how many people lived where. So then you get into the conflict of urban versus rural. Then you can start to add in uh, the rivers, the railroads, the canals. So then you can start to show connectivity. And you can show maybe the networks that developed as the railroad moved north and moved west. And you can then quantify that data. You could say, I wonder which state had the most miles of railroad. And as long as you have that information, you can then have the system calculate that information for you. That would be painstaking to do if you did that manually. Um, Now with the technology, you can quickly calculate and aggregate data on scales and levels that before took months, if not years. Sounds like a lot of expertise is needed. You need to be an expert in the content. You need to be an expert in the technology, maybe in the pedagogy around using this in a classroom setting at any level. To me, that implies a real need for project partnership. Do you have any examples or maybe a favorite example of a project that has really um, been innovative? It's developed new information using emerging technologies, and it's pulled together partners that may otherwise not have worked together at all. Yeah, I've been a part of a number of great partnerships. The one that immediately comes to mind that's very recent and very relevant is the mapping and teaching of the Meuse-Argonne Offensive. We're currently in the centennial of the World War One, uh, the events of World War One, And so often in American history, we're, we glaze over World War One. We teach you need to know the main causes, militarism, alliances, imperialism, and nationalism. If you got that, oh, don't forget the assassination in Czech, we've covered it. And you need to know what happened in trenches. Uh, what's lost in that are really the the sacrifices that were made by um, American expeditionary forces over there. And so we partnered with the American Battle Monuments Commission to take a group of teachers to the Meuse-Argonne region of France, which has been fought over since the Roman Empire. It's a very rich, fertile valley on the border of Germany and France. And it's where the largest offensive in U.S. history occurred. Uh, Over 1 million American forces were involved there, and over 26,000 soldiers lost their life you will find the second largest cemetery on foreign soil located there. But it's a story that's not told very often. So we took a team of teachers over there, and we took advantage of the geospatial technologies and human resources, such as the people with the background and the context of what happened, and we built an interactive website with interactive maps. Um, We had teachers out in the field using GPS units to take pictures or to plot items that they found out on the Western Front. Uh, One thing that it's hard for people to imagine is that World War I really hasn't left that region. You can be walking through the woods and you'll find, you might find a rifle. You will find old trenches and, and other, other things. The evidence of the war is there, but we don't really see that here. So we wanted to really bring the war home. Um, in addition to that, we had teachers out there with go cams where they went to certain places where they had a narrative where a soldier explained, this is where I was fighting. And they went back and found that location. They captured 
some video with it, and we were able to secure the location. Uh, we worked with a team from Virginia Tech who took uh, more advanced geospatial technologies, uh, LIDAR, uh, which is a laser um, infrared technology that helps you 3D model things. And they 3D modeled some ruins, some trenches, some tunnels, uh, went and digitized a monument. And again, we have the location to it, so then we can put that same rendering on a map. We also took paper maps of the battlefield and things that were commissioned by the American government over nearly 100 years ago. And we digitized all the fronts, all the lines, all the advancements. And uh, we were very fortunate to work with Dave Bedford, who's the uh, administrator or the superintendent of the cemetery. And he took us out to these places where he said, you must include this with the map. After we left there, we bundled all the work together, worked with Tim Nozel and his support staff at ABMC to build a website. And at that website now, you'll see essays about the offensive. You will see traditional lessons where students interact with primary sources. Um, But the real gem of the work was bundling all of this media together in three different online interactive maps so that students are able to answer one geographic question, where and why the Mews are gone. And the students actually find out how complex the battlefield was. The battlefield was 700 square miles. It had hundreds of towns hundreds of clumps of trees, tremendous difficult terrain that we just say the Meuse-Argonne was this offensive that helped bring World War I to an end. And it's one of the crowning moments of putting America on the world stage and helping uh, liberate Europe during the early 20th century. That's the great textbook definition. But to really grapple with what that means, these maps bring it to life. The other two maps we have is one looks at the phases of the war. It was a six-week battle. And it took a lot of different phases. It had five different areas that had emphasis. And what we did with that battlefield is we also plotted in primary source images. We brought in videos that our teachers and our team captured. We've got Dave Bedford being interviewed at certain locations so that a teacher can choose to use this or a scholar can choose to use this to complement what they're doing. And uh, it brings the World War I to life like probably never before, at least for the Muse are gone in that way. And the final thing we did was we created a virtual field trip, and we took basically everything to bundle. Why does the American government have monuments and cemeteries around the world, and why did they choose those places? Um, so that's, a, that's, a, that's one of the projects I've worked on. And as you can see, it took a lot of different skills, a lot of different disciplines, and a lot of teamwork. It's, it does sound like a, an amazing project to be able to capture that landscape, that contested landscape. and then create layers in which scholars and students alike can interrogate it and unpack it for meaning and understanding. As a side note, we're very pleased at the National Humanities Center to be working with you and a similar team uh, in partnership with the University of Vietnam and the School of Education to do a very similar approach to uh, the historic landscape of Dien Bien Phu in Vietnam and to be able to capture that landscape and to bring it back to American students to better understand the French and Vietnamese conflict of the 1950s in preparation of the uh, the anniversary and commemoration of the, the American Vietnam War that will be occurring in just a few years. Uh, so we appreciate your your contributions to that. So, Chris, obviously you you have a lot of experience in GIS and geospatial thinking. Uh, you've been able to apply it to your teaching and to your scholarship and work with others to do the same thing. These seem, though, much different than that old dog-eared map that you shove into your glove box or pull out of your car seat to figure out where to go next or what what left turn to take. These seem to be maps that can really be interrogated and have a high impact on understanding the layers of a place, of a a location. Um, So I'd like to leave today's podcast with just a simple question. 
What is your favorite map? That's a good question. Uh, when I think about that, you know, you got to think about two ways. There's a paper map or a traditional map and a GIS map. So I'll give you a favorite for both. Uh, my favorite traditional map is courtesy of the National Archives in London uh, that we've had an opportunity to do some work with. And uh, the map is titled The Situation of Several Nations of Indians to the Northwest of South Carolina. And it, it was a GIS map before GIS was cool. What year was that, that map created? Uh, 1700, sometime in the early 18th century. Uh, it shows the situation between Charleston and Virginia, and it shows it's a trading map that shows networks and how to trade between Virginia and South Carolina with different Native American uh, tribes. And it's got everything from it shows influence of power in the tribes that were more powerful in trade. It shows how to get around a, a group. I mean, it, it really is what we're trying to do with digital humanities today is how to reveal these connections. So it shows relationships. Absolutely. And the story between those people and maybe even gives the explicit example that all maps are created by a person to tell a story, that maps themselves are storyboards uh, that reflect the world that we live in. Yep. And my favorite GIS map is the one that my son's currently working on. It's uh, pirates in our backyard and just watching my son become a little explorer and map out things and wanting to change the symbols. Uh, that's probably my favorite GIS map these just days. Just imagine all the mystery gone when you don't have to follow the map to the X. You just take your mobile device and follow it to the treasure chest. Yeah. My problem is every time I look at those Xs, I'm not finding any treasures. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today in this podcast. Uh, we appreciate your contributions to the center and to education in general. Thanks for having me. We'll see you next time. Then thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for another podcast from the National Humanities Center and set your podcasts for subscribe.